Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of I Was There Too. I'm Matt Gorley, and this is the show where I talk to people present in the great scenes of cinema history. Today, an actor present in many great scenes of cinema history, all within pretty much the same amazing year. Dilip Rao, who played the benevolent Dr. Patel in James Cameron's Avatar, the prescient seer Ram Joss in Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell, and Yusuf, the dream chemist in Christopher Nolan's Inception. There was plenty to talk about, and Dilip was such a wealth of information and articulation. I loved talking to him. Plus, we discussed goat castration. And with Inception alone, there are so many fan theories for this film, it's ridiculous. Even some from the filmmakers themselves, so it was nice to have Dilip there to comment on the validity of these things. Ah, it was a great talk. And that's all there is to say. Let's get into it. The films, Inception and Avatar, the years, 2010 and 2009, the roles, Yusuf and Dr. Max Patel, the actor, Dilip Rao. Dilip Rao, in Drag Me to Hell, you play a seer, in Inception, a chemist, and in Avatar, some kind of future astrobiologist, each with their own lair, shop, or lab. Does it help to have a character's home base to draw from in a film just built into the set? Uh, yeah, I think that's really, really big. And, you know, especially in Drag Me to Hell, I had a lot of interaction with um, the prop people and with Sam Raimi, especially about what his house would look like. And I always said there'd be more books, less furniture. And uh, <laughs> I read that you even got to come up with some of the titles of the books. Is that yeah, right? yeah. I got to fool around with with because the, with, the prop person was such a great person, Ellen Freund. Uh, still a good friend of mine. She's just such an extraordinary talent and so open and Sam Raimi so open to collaboration as are Chris and, and, and Jim. I, I just really got to have a little bit of input in terms of making that character very specific. And, you know, I went down to the Bodhi tree, which doesn't exist anymore. I remember that place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I went to their religion section and just, you know, 
got every book on everything I'd ever even heard a word about, like Rosicrucian Christianity. And I just wanted the guy to be a kind of versed person in that particular example, like very clear about what he thought about the supernatural and what he didn't think, which is important. And yeah, I think having a physical space and having those labs like in Avatar, the wonder, you know, that gets transmitted through the film, a lot of that is based on the very specific design Jim Cameron and all of his designers came up with and the beautiful way those things were made and the way they're shot and the way they're lit. The, the credibility of your performance comes from <laughs> really interacting with something that's so beautifully made. It's, uh, you know, it's not called art direction by accident. It is art and the design, I think it was Rick Carter designed in Avatar's the, the level of detail is truly astonishing. That's got to be a rare luxury because in my experience acting, like you get your costume and it, it sort of seals the deal. It finishes your character. But then these are your three first films, correct? Yeah. And you walk on the set and they're your territory. I mean that's just got to help immensely. I, yeah, I, I think you have to kind of put your own feelings about whether you've done enough to be there <laughs> at that moment aside and you have to kind of do the job, you know, and be as credible as possible. But all three of those roles, you know, they, they involve um, – expertise, you know, where you're both expository expertise and then plot expertise. Right. And uh, that has to be really credible from a physical and, and you know, mental aspect for that those characters. And for me, you know, I, I'm sort of steeped in science growing up. My parents are – my mother's a physicist. My father's an engineer. Math and science are kind of the lingua franca of our house. So it was not very hard for me to imagine myself projecting some of that, you know. Yeah. Now, you came into film acting like a lion first with Drag Me to Hell, then Avatar, then Inception, all in the space of a year or so. What was that year or two like? I mean, Well, was- I shot Avatar first, actually. Uh, that was my first movie. Um, yeah, you know, that's like where you you don't have much time to think. You just have to do work. And, <laughs> you, you just got to show up. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I thought it was a lot like going to the theater in terms of special effects movies especially. They feel a little more like you're shooting – in an imaginary environment because a lot of those things, the concepts are imaginary or they're very well thought through, but they're not real. The effect of movie make, movie making makes it real. And uh, you have to be really strong about that. So I, I just felt like that, that was my job was to be credible and to work hard at making those illusions uh, seem that I was not dissimilar from what all the work everyone else was doing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's start with uh, Inception. So sure. talk about your character. You play the chemist, mm-hmm. Yusuf. And I'm going to get like needlessly cerebral with this because I think the movie can sustain it. And sure. It takes a certain amount of focus to understand this film. I, I could imagine the same thing in acting it above and beyond what it takes for any other role. For that reason, was it any more intense on this set or discussed more with just the actors, let alone the director between takes? Did you guys have to sort things out and go, wait, where are we at this point and that kind of thing? Certainly there are times when you're like, what just happened right before this? Like, <laughs> but I think that's a good question in anything you're doing, you know, like what just happened? What's next? What's the beat before? Um, but the interesting thing about that movie is because it's so segmented, right? There's all, as, as the you go further into the plot of the film, although it's obviously shot in a sequence – you're all there's all these different layers and different characters and different worlds working at the same time. Um, Chris is such a wonderful writer and a talented, talented storyteller that it was really clear. You know, I, I think the experience of seeing that movie and it's probably close to the first time I read the script where it's just it's very it's a lot coming at you very quickly. Yeah. But I do think it it because he was so strong with the story of it and brushed everything that didn't matter out of the movie mm-hmm. that it it sort of just sustains itself. It's really smart. Some of the hardest things in it have been put inside of it so you don't feel it happening. And uh, you have more of the experience of what 
the characters have, I think. Interesting. Yeah. How much information does he give you for a scene? And there's a fair amount of ambiguity in Inception, at least as far as the audience is concerned. I mean, it's it's clear, but it also intentionally allows you to make a call at the ending and that sort of thing. But I'm curious how much there was on set from him specifically. Well, I, you know, I think his direction is usually very simple and actable. That's what I liked about working with him. And I think that he's he's got a, such a strong vision. All three of the directors you mentioned, they have such strong visions of what the movie is. I, I think the gig of directing, if you're a film director, is that you're making the movie in your head to some degree while you're shooting it. And you're very clear about the movie you're making. And, you know, he's like 100 on that. And, <laughs> and I, I think that his – the ambiguity that comes out of his movies, I think, comes from a really deep place in how he works. It's There's something about all those moments being very specific, but that he, he makes the context sort of bendable so that you can put the story together in a lot of different ways. And he's not he's not force-feeding you what the movie should mean. You know, I think he leaves yeah. that to you. And yet he gives you these amazing ingredients. He's sort of like th- – this film couldn't be done by anyone other than an auteur director. And no. I, could you imagine if the studio meddled with something like this? It would be – Well, I think, you know, that's a much larger question. I think that our <laughs> our, our business is not uh, – it's not driven to, to serve auteurs very often. Christopher Nolan's one of those rare people that has the talent to serve all masters equally with his own brilliance, you know, like he – and then get rid of masters. And not many people get to do that, and some do, and I've been fortunate to work with people like that. But that is not a, a very common, um, you know, it's, it's not a, a, a privilege afforded to many. And I think that his use of it is pretty exemplary. I'm just now realizing these three films we're talking about. Your first three films are basically all auteur films by auteur filmmakers, and that's another I mean, amazing rarity that you got to do that. Well, I think it probably. I mean, I always say, and I mean this as honestly as I can that. I get cast when the producer and director are the same person. You know, <laughs> I, I think I got, that's that's how I get jobs. They don't have to differ on opinions. And, and there's no like, you know, I don't think he's the right guy. I do think he's the right guy. I think they just know and they cast me and I get the job and I've been really, really lucky and oh, I know that too. That's a good place to be, I think. All right, let's talk about the chemist. So um, I want to know if there's any backstory you had on Yusuf and why they say in the in the film he rarely goes into the field anymore. Did you ever discuss that? I had talked to Chris about what my backstory was for it, and he kind of gave me a good nod and like, talked a little bit about it from his point of view. You know, a lot of it was trying to come up with um, you know some age on him because he was written a little bit older than I was when mm-hmm. I shot it, and even older than I am now. And so I gained a lot of weight to shoot the movie, and I kind of came up with really strong understanding of. You know, if you're an avant-garde person in any field, right, particularly, let's say, like a biochemical um, drug-based field. A dream sedator? You yeah, know, yeah, the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah. sure. I think you're going to be, you know, someone who's committed to his work at a very high level. And you're. I, I had made up the story that he had trained he'd, – he'd grown up in, in, you know, the Indian diaspora in Africa, had trained in the UK, had become very talented, had become sick of being hemmed in. And decided to go do his off-the-grid work where he went and that he'd had certain experiences because he was working in that kind of bleeding edge of the field that had really kind of made him feel like at this age he doesn't want to keep doing it. You know, he, he was happy to provide the means but that he'd kind of said, I'm done taking these risks in my own life. And, you know, the idea of limbo in that movie, that was to me part of the real antagonist for my character was that there is a kind of mental – oblivion you can go into where you can't return and you lose yourself and 
the time, the dilation of time could be so dangerous to your own existence that that had to be a real fear for him, like that that was a possibility, you know? What was your initial meeting like with Christopher Nolan and how you got in this film? Um, well, the first time I ever saw him, I auditioned for him. And, you know, he's one of the most intent people when you're acting for him. And it's not – it's personal at the level of the work that's so very direct at an audition that you're like, whoa, you know. Um, but it's not personal like he doesn't want to chat. He chats a little bit. Uh, that stuff doesn't, I think, matter much to him in my experience. You mean uh, he's to the point with the work. He wants to get right to the But he's also matter. really, really, really paying attention. Like the littlest things that flip through your mind, a thought you have, the choices you make, he's reading those things like at 100, you know. So I think that that's where his attention is really personal, you know. And I felt his focus and his, you know, his the producer of our film, uh, Emma Thomas, his wife, is also like that. I think she's um, – She's such a person of impeccable taste, and I was just lucky enough that they chose me. But I, I do remember his focus and her focus being really intent. And when I met him later was after I got the job, and we sat and talked for about an hour. Um, I went down and read the script for the first time, and went into his office, and you know that was like Christmas. You know, you know, <laughs> he just made The Dark Knight. I had known his movies since Memento. Um, I'd seen Batman Begins in the theater in New York, and I remember. You know, I love Batman. I just remember seeing that movie and, you know, at that age I was very still early in my career then. But I vowed to myself as some weird part of me. I was like, I have to work with that guy. Jeez. And I had no idea what it was going to be. I was like, maybe it'll be a Batman movie. Maybe he'll make a – maybe he'll make some period piece where an Indian guy's in it and I'll get to be in it. But uh, Maybe he'll make a dream infiltration movie where that, he needs that a never chemist that sedates me. people. That, that, that never occurred to me. Uh, so let's talk about some of these amazing action scenes. You're driving this van around in the pouring rain. How much driving did you actually do? It's it's some intricate stuff, and we'll, we're not even talking about going off the bridge yet. A fair bit. I, you know, there was days where you would we would shoot a lot of the stuff um, in the morning. Uh, you know, the set on set stuff, on location stuff, and then in the afternoon there would be like an hour or two or more of me driving the van around for little snippets, little pieces here and there. Uh, I remember the um, stunt coordinator, Tom, was like, okay, you're going to drive this van around the corner, and when I tell you to stop it and put your hand – I'll put my hand out the window. I want you to drive the van at me at this speed and then stop exactly where I tell you to touch my hand to see if I could do what he wanted me to do. And so I was driving this van. I'd never driven a van in my life, and um, I guess I passed that test because they let me drive yeah. uh, most of the driving. You know, Of course, like when you're driving in a movie – there's all these vehicles in front of you and behind you and camera vehicles and, you know, people clearing the road. It's not like I'm driving in L.A. traffic, you know. But, you know, it's also very specific forms of shooting. It's it's acting, you know. You have to drive it so it's credible to the camera that what you're doing is do, being done. And and this uh, isn't torrential rain all because your character didn't go to the bathroom. Before that is correct. Or no, I don't, it's not just that I drank too much champagne. Yeah, and so and you have was, to pee. Was the was the Eames line by Tom Hardy, right? Um, <laughs> but, yeah, th- that was a lot of, like – you know, there were so many different versions of that van. Some had the windows tinted, not tinted, no windows, windows, rain rigged, not rain rigged. Um, there were days, you know, I'm driving around with that whole cast and Chris and Wally Fister in the car, in the van with me. And I'm like, I'm driving this van. And there's like, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars with a movie star in the car. And um, Was any of the IMAX equipment in there at that point? Uh, Did they shoot this film IMAX? I think there were sequences. In it. I don't yeah. think anything I shot was shot that way. Uh-huh. 
And then you also sh- you have to shoot a gun outside of this van. Had you done any kind of firearms work before? I, I had never seen a working gun in a movie or a play. I had done plays where the guns aren't loaded. There's mm-hmm. no blanks or anything. And I'd done uh, Boy Scout, like, you know, riflery, ma- merit badge stuff. But uh, I'd never fired a weapon that was modern like that and not in, like, a context where you're trying to fight off, like, you know, assailants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the professionalism of everyone in those situations is paramount. You know, they always say every time there's a gun on set, everyone has to look at every gun, and that's like a thing they do. And the minute they all cut the armor or has the gun out of your hands, there was no chance of anything weird happening. And it's a really impressive, like, you know, orchestration so that it seems like it seems on camera. There's a lot of people who work to make that happen. And, you know, the grace under pressure of all those people working is is something I, I just totally marvel at. It's good leadership, you know, obviously. Yeah, in a whole sequence like that, I marvel at the fact that what is edited to look edited to look frenetic and uh, like dangerous is probably repetitive and tedious in a way. I mean, how many days do you think it took to shoot that whole sequence in downtown LA? Oh, I mean, not just downtown, Terminal Island Bridge. There's you know, it was months of work, but it's you live to do it, right? I'm like sure, you, yeah. you 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 are the most excited ever that you get to go do it. It's like playing, yeah. you know, but also your attention and alertness are at a very high level because you have to be careful. Uh-huh. And, you know, Chris said something that's, you know, I'm sure people have said before or after, but he, he was the first person I ever heard say it, which was, you know, you make the movie three times, you write it, you shoot it and you post in post, you edit it and synthesize it. And you can see him making the pieces, you know, from his imagination, he creates the pieces and you work to make those pieces so that they become that intense action thing. That's like a a kind of like again like a symphony and assemblage of so many ideas and such careful detailed work. Wally Pfister, I mean, obviously can't say enough about how brilliant that guy is and how well he shot that picture. You forget, like you know, when you're acting in movies, it's you're walking around and doing the scenes, and then maybe you'll catch a monitor where you'll see something. Because I usually don't like looking at the monitor because, like many people, I'm vain and can't believe I look like I look. But. I, I think that, you know, you see how he shot it. You're like, oh, my God, it's a Chris Nolan Wally Fister movie. Like, it, it looks amazing, <laughs> you know? It's hard not to compare the three times you make a movie with the three depths of the dream, especially knowing that Christopher Nolan essentially put that crew together as a filmmaking crew with the producer, the art director, the actor. And you know, what's so thing. funny about that is, like, I, I all those theories that came out after the movie, and I never in a million years thought it would become as sort of such an inspiration or, you know, uh, a tabula rasa for other people's theory making. Um, I, I obviously knew it was a very dense movie. It had a lot of ideas in it and it was thrillingly original, you know. Um, I, I didn't realize like how many people would see that kind of thing into it. Like, oh, look, it's like people – it's like the movie making process broken down into a heist picture. Like we're stealing the movie and I was like – well, I, I don't think of it like that, but you know, kudos to people's imagination. You know, you're making me doubt my sources because I'm the same way. I get very skeptical about these fan theories and stuff. But I thought I read that he himself actually said that one. He may have. I, 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 I could I, be wrong. I, I certainly didn't read everything he ever said about the movie afterward. I just I, I caught snippets, obviously, and every time I was near him and I would hear him talk about it. But you know, I think that it's clearly you know, a good approximation if you think of it that yeah. way. Because you're also right. I mean, it is bonkers, the level that people will go to to make 
like numerological sense of this movie. And I mean, it, it goes deep. Yes, very. And I think that's probably has a lot to do with the density of ideas and the specificity of the movie. Like it's very specific, you know? Yeah. So, all right, taking the van over the bridge and into the water, what was that process like? I wasn't, you know, obviously no one is going into the water in the van. That's yeah. crazy. Um, if I remember correctly, and I, it's been a bit, but I think they shot that van out of a cannon so it would clear the hurdle <laughs> of this thing. And, uh, so they had a van cannon. Yeah, they built a rig. I mean, look, Chris is the guy who flipped the freaking semi right. trailer in Dark Knight. Like the semi trailer. The guy, the guy loves practical effects, and he has a very strong. Um, I think he has a very strong understanding that for him, it's also like let's do something that's never been done and do it great, so people will see it and go, "That was cool." But only as far as it serves the plot. I don't think he's out there like trying to be a you know um, a special effects you know specialist. I think yeah. he only uses it where it serves his movies. Uh, but yeah, they they shot that thing over the bridge. They shot it at super high speed, so it would come down in slow motion. And then we shot the underwater sequences in the van at Universal in a giant tank. And you know, it's like the scuba day. You've been training for it for like weeks and taking scuba lessons. So you had to get certified for scuba. Or we were not certified. Lessons? I was. I'm not certified to be clear. But we had to take a lot of lessons on how to use a regulator, <laughs> and then how to be weighted down, and how to get out of the van when it's underwater, and your safety diver, and what it was like to shoot. You know, I didn't know any of that stuff. And then you get to the day, and you're suddenly like in your wetsuit and with your costume on top of it and you're going into the tank and you're holding your breath and like you, know, you put the regulator in and they take the regulator away for the shot then you grab it from underneath your seat and the doors you know it, it's very practical there you know it, it's there's a lot of divers everywhere it's complex day where's this tank what studio it's a you? universal it's on the back lot there's this like i think it's like several hundred oh thousand the outdoor gallons. one the one the big yes. jaws four one that's yes. right yeah, yeah yeah and then it has the uh they had this you know giant crane with a shade to keep the sun from shining directly on the water. Uh-huh. So it was like beautifully lit, even though it's like, you know, this outdoor set. They just had done such a beautiful job with it. Wow. Let's talk about working with just the whole gang. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hardy, JGL. Yeah. Uh, so when you're slapping Joseph Gordon-Levitt as you're testing the sedation on him, how many times do you do that? And what is the tolerance arc from someone at the receiving end of that? You know, I got to say he's the most professional. Everyone in that, that movie was like, you know, the most professional actor you could even imagine. And, you know, your job is not to indulge yourself in slapping him. <laughs> but uh, we had to do it a few times at least. And I remember just like, you know, I didn't want to waste a take of doing that by goofing around too sure. much. But there was this, you know – I just remember like trying to make sure I was looking at him as if there was an effect that was supposed to happen when I hit him. And uh, I just remember being like, hey, man, I'm sorry, but I'm going to do this. And he was so like, yeah, man, just go for it. It's okay. And he did such a great job of taking it. You know, like he just didn't flinch. Just, yeah, because he, he has to remain sedated. And he's so good at it. And, really? and, and he's – yeah, he's such a good actor. Those guys, that – like you said, that entire team of actors, it's like – it's like being on the 27 Yankees and you're like, you know, some random person next to Garrick and Babe Ruth. And, you know, when it comes to your job and your time to go up to bat, like, yeah, it's your job now. You know, it's not like, you know, I'm just along. Like, that, that doesn't work. You, it, there was a sense on that set of everyone's expected to bring their best. That's true of every movie. But, you know, the, this had so many such supremely talented, experienced actors in it that uh, Killian Murphy uh, – Ken Watanabe, Ellen Page. Those people were just all like aces. I mean, how many Academy Award nominations were it's on crazy. that set? It was crazy. It's Yeah. I mean, it's the A-team. What's the dynamic like between takes in relation to the characters in the movie? You know, I mean, 
maybe I should get to it this way. Like who's the lighthearted goofy one and who's the intense serious one? Did that come out or was it just kind of – Yeah. Uh, so I think I, – I don't think anyone occupies a hierarchy in, or like a role play like that. Everyone there was – you know, they're all stars. So yeah. um, everyone was really gracious I thought. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's goofing around between people because you're, you're just there for a long time and there's a lot of goofiness between actors and it's, it's a lot of fun, a lot of really smart, talented people. Um, I think we just try to relax because there was a lot of like, you know, intense stuff yeah. to deal with. There's a lot of stunts and a lot of like um, locations and, and you have to negotiate a lot of little things. But, you know, when you have someone like Leo DiCaprio at the head of the movie, like the star of the movie, he sets a certain tenor of like we're all there to work hard and do do good work and have a good time. But he's such a fantastically talented guy and, and he, he makes a lot of really hard stuff look easy that I, you know, I think we all we all felt this – Strong ambition to do, deliver excellent work, you know. Okay, let's talk about Avatar a little bit. Sure, you play Dr. Max Patel. Indeed. <clears throat> um. So you shot this film first of the three we're talking it's about. First right? movie ever made, yeah. Really? Okay, so it's your first movie experience. How I imagine this being a long shoot for some reason because it's James it Cameron, it and was. then you have a long post production enough to do another film in the space of yeah, right? yeah, or yeah. two maybe one, one, one. Yeah, yeah. okay so how did you end up in the film and what was the basic experience? I mean that was like you know one of those everyone has that Hollywood story but like you know I'd been an actor jobbing doing a lot of theater not much camera work and I auditioned for this movie I imagine if I heard I can't remember it correctly but I, I know there were tons of people who read for it and that was like a Thursday and you went down to the office there was no sides nothing the appointment she just said writer James Cameron, director, James Cameron, nothing. No title? No role. It was called Project 880, I think. And I went down and I read the slides for 20 minutes and I went in and read once and the casting assistant and the casting director were like, I think you're really good for this part, but you're a little on the page. You know, maybe you should just take a little more time. Took another 20 minutes and I was like, you know. Really quick, does that fluster you or does that go, okay, I need need to stand up and get to this point because I could hear that and go, well, I'm ruined it. No, no. The first thing I hear when that happens is you have a chance. Okay. Like I don't God, think that's that, a great way to look at it. See, I don't right th- there is the difference between you. No, no. No, that's not true. I have many of the other kinds of demons too. <laughs> that would um, never occur to me. No, I listen, I think just in my own estimation, like there's so many jobs you go in for where you're not, you have no chance of getting it or you know, it's not offered to someone else or like you're you're just there to read, you know, and maybe you're the flavor they want, right? But I think that sometimes especially maybe when they've seen a lot of people, you're kind of close to what they want and it's just you haven't delivered what you can best yet. Yeah, yeah. They kind of are like, take a little more time and you go, oh, okay. They're so they're pulling I, for you, but they need to see it. I, I think first of all, I think they're always pulling for you. But I think sometimes they're like there's the scent is up. Like they're this this could be it, right? And so I just read it I read it over again. I went back in, I read it. I remember thinking, you know, this feels close to me and I'm gonna make it really me. You know? And I hit all the marks, obviously I hit all the beats in it. But just you know, do it from how I thought this guy was, and if I remember correctly, the character's name was Max Cullimore. Then it was Irish or something, or like the Irish last name, Irish American last name. And then I left to go to. I had a little bit of a beard, and I shaved for my friend's wedding, and I was best man at his wedding that weekend. And I came down, and I got a phone call from my agent that said, "Yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going on, but I think you're working this job." And I was like, "What?" She's like, "Yeah, you're gonna get a few phone calls. Don't call anyone yet. I've got to figure out if you got it." And what the offer is, we haven't got the offer yet. But, how, uh, how cryptic. 
Yeah, but I was like out of my mind. I was like, whoa. I was a stir crazy. You know that cafe on, on uh, Melrose? No, uh-uh. uh, It's right by Lebr- between La Brea and Highland. And I like ran out of there and like started screaming at the top of my lungs. <laughs> and I got the call. You got the job. Jim Cameron wants to meet you. Don't shave. I was like, uh-oh. Um, but there was plenty of time. I grew my beard back. And I went and met him and we were off to New Zealand. That that easy? I mean, it all. listen, it's not me making it easy. It's like at that level – it just happens. So you arrive in New Zealand. How long are you there from start to finish? Or do you go back and come uh, back, back and forth? I was there from like mid October, early October, like the second week of October. I can't remember. Um, we came back for the holidays and we went back down there for a little while. I think if I'm not wrong, we wrapped there in late January. And at what point do you become real aware? At, at what point do you become aware that this is going to be a cutting edge technology film? Oh, you're the day you arrive. I mean, like you're just seeing this equipment and it's, I mean, I'd never made a movie before, but everyone was telling me we're doing things that have never been done. I mean, the stuff with the simulcam or yeah. they had the effects in the camera while you're shooting the live action, the mocap was in there and the running to the 3d pod to see what the takes look like for the, for them when they were looking at how the picture shooting, the reflections, the 3d stuff like that, that clearly was, I mean, you see these incredibly seasoned, the best filmmakers in the world at the cutting edge of what they're doing, like you, you know, like this is not easy, and what they're doing is making the impossible look somewhat routine. And this is your first film, yeah. I mean, I look <laughs> that that will always be one of those insane things. Do you feel at all spoiled that you you began with these three amazing films? Uh, I feel uh, spoiled for sure. Yeah, I also feel really lucky, and I feel like I worked with the best people in the business consistently in those three pictures and. Um, talent-wise, you know, personally, at every level. I can't help but notice Dr. Patel stays behind on Pandora at the end of this film. Will we see him in Avatar parts 2 through 45? I literally don't know anything, and um, I, I'm pretty sure even if I did, I couldn't say anything. But I, I don't I'm know, pretty sure you couldn't either. I don't know anything. I was alive at the end. Uh, that was always really fun. Um, you know, there was a kind of energy I had for that character that he was not an action hero <laughs> and that he's not a particularly adept person at being in a story like this. In terms of the physical stuff, but the idea at the end that you know Jim had me with a gun and a and a, a you know aimed at all these people marching off the planet, I always thought that was such a cool tribute to like the triumph of the nerdy scientist yeah. who gets his moment. You know, I think that that comes across very well, especially as the just sort of alpha military guys are being marched away by the science nerds. Yeah, like they they I mean through the effect of the astonishing natives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were saying that you had a lot of input on, for instance, the props and the wardrobe on Drag Me to Hell. I'm curious to – I wouldn't say a lot. I had some. You yeah. had some. So I'm curious on a film like this, which is such a huge production and you have you know, very specific oval eyeglasses that in a way like they, they do play a part of your character. Do you get a say in something You get big? some say. Jim gets the final say, I'm obviously. Sure, yeah. Um, but yeah, I got some say. I got to say like I think he wears eyeglasses and we had a little conversation about like – well, why do you think he didn't have surgery this far in the future? And I was like, well, I don't think that he would have trusted the people on this base to do anything with his eyes. And if his eyes got worse while he's out here, he's just going to get glasses made here. He's not going to have someone do surgery out here that's not you know, at a medical center on earth because he probably trusts himself more than anyone else. And Jim was like, that's a good idea. And you know, I, I kind of uh, – I wrote a lot of stuff out of notebooks and I got to work with a lot of really cool scientific equipment. But all of that was to make sure that the process was very clear to me as to how the science worked in, you know, science fiction, 
Jim always said it's like you put a, the patina of believability on a, on a kind of imaginative story, and his patina is really good. So it made it easy for me to like just buy into it. You know, yeah. he's just such a smart, imaginative dude that like he has certain unbelievable talents grasping your imagination and and taking you places you've never been. And and also, I think from Aliens or Terminator, even I would say Terminator first. He has a way of teaching you the story logic of his stories uh, really, really well and then using that to tell you a thrilling story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a pretty rare gift and he has it in spades. You mentioned that in the future, why would people have glasses? I always ask that question. Same thing with baldness. Like you'd think that these things would be taken care of in the future. And, and- But, you know, with baldness, like this is what I think about that. It's like, well, if you have the option to everyone to have hair – then you might be it's someone who's like, choice, yeah. yeah, it's like it's like yeah. you're a silverback gorilla, right? You shed your hair, you get grayer hair, you look more manly. Maybe there's something, maybe there's something in the future about really being testosterone ripped that makes you bald and cool looking. I, I think those aesthetics, the aesthetics of of our modern world, when projected into the future, always fare poorly. Yeah. As we see when we look at like past hipster, you know, film clips or television <laughs> shows, where people are having different haircuts and different outfits. Uh, we're often very wrong about what's going to stay looking good, you know? Yeah. So working with James Cameron on a day-to-day basis, compounded with the fact that he's using this new technology, what what was the intensity level like with him? Was he just – Dude, oh. 100. That guy works so hard. You've never <laughs> met anyone. Though. I mean he's very laid back. You can talk to him between takes and he's a generous, really smart, incredibly talented filmmaker, an incredibly talented guy. He's he got many other interests you know, beyond filmmaking but – you know, he can do everything on a film set literally at a world-class level and he doesn't act. That's yeah. all, right? He does everything else. And uh, He probably would too if he was more than one physical human body. I don't think he has any interest in it actually. No. I think he has a great respect for actors like a lot and if he trusts I just him, mean all the other roles. Like I, I oh, could see him. Dude. If he could just clone himself, he would just populate yeah, himself as But a he's crew. also the guy who hired Mara Fiori and had Robert DeAngelis come down and work with us. And, um, um, I'm screwing up his name. Uh, our – City cam operator, which will come to me in a minute. These people are the best people in the world at what they do. And so he surrounds himself with those people because while he can do it, he also wants their input and he also wants them to do it. And it's about building really like a first rate team. And, you know, from the special effects people, you had the best of the best of the best all the way down. So, yeah, he's he works harder than anyone I've ever met in anything. A uh, guy works 16, 17 hour days. And when you're shooting, you work 16, 17 hour days, but then you get days off and he doesn't. <laughs> And he just sees it through from beginning to end with the kind of purpose and drive that's, my goodness, like this is probably what it took to, you know, do the Apollo program. Like it it takes that kind of intensity to do something that's cutting edge and brand new, you know? Yeah. I mean, as evidenced by the fact that we still have yet to see the sequels because it feels like he's putting as much development and time into those as well. I don't think he's willing to make a movie that's not challenging to him. Mm -hmm. So he's probably taking on things that have yet to even be sort of seen as the next frontier. I'm sure visually those movies will be extraordinary. Yeah, it's hard to imagine topping the visuals of the last one, but I bet we'll see that. Yeah, I mean I thought that about Titanic and Aliens and and Terminator 2. And, you know, every movie he's made, you always think, like, how could anyone make anything more than this? Like, The Abyss, that movie blew my mind when I saw it, you know? Yeah. 
So uh, this was a bit of a reunion for Sigourney Weaver and James Cameron as well. What was their rapport like on set? I mean, like two people had done a lot of things together <laughs> and the people who knew each other very, very well. And she's, you know, a grade A superstar talent and superstar star. And so doesn't, you know, it's not hard for her to be excellent. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, you can learn a lot just by watching her work and where she's efficient and how well she can handle little moments. Also, you know, she had to do a lot of the motion capture too, and she'd done all that. And she's so brave and game to do anything that as an actor, I think she teaches you a lot about not sticking to your habits, but learning how to be a better actor and be more um, plastic. She has such an extraordinary ability to listen and be clear. And, you know, she has so many iconic full moments. If you think about how many she's just had on her own. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And when you realize like, the greatness in acting is the fact that you could ever like recall it and imitate it. It's that you generated it, and she's generated so many of those moments that are just forever. You know, um, I just think of her work in Alien and Aliens, and uh, you know, Ghostbusters. She's like you know this character that's the rooted center of that movie, and I just admire her talent immensely. Speaking of the motion capture, so your character didn't do any motion nope. capture. I imagine that being a blessing and a curse. Like, oh, I wish I could do a little bit about that. But then you see the intensity and the physical aspect of that work. Was there ever a feeling of, oh, I'm glad I dodged a bullet there? No, I think that for me, like whatever they put on my plate, I'll do. And yeah. I, I do it with gusto. Because I, like, again, it's working is super fun. Um, I do think it's a kind of – it's a high, it's a new kind of acting. It's a lot of like um, – it's closer to th- – theater in some ways because I think when I've seen people doing it, it's a lot of physical dexterous work but it also affords an incredible tool to the filmmakers because they can shoot the scenes over and over from different angles using the same exact motion capture moments, right? And then generate these extraordinary creatures out of that and that's like such a cool new brush for them to paint with. So yeah, I I guess I was bummed that I didn't get to experience some of that but also, there's something kind of cool about being on the other side of it and only experiencing it as an effects process from that character becoming a real character. Yeah. And then me being a, a human being in the film, interacting with that. That was kind of cool to not have a duality. It was like I got to experience the wonder of it too, you know? All right. My last question about Avatar is possibly rumor-based, but I read online that uh, James Cameron, known for being tough on set, allegedly kept a nail gun on the set that he would use to nail cell phones that had a misfortune of going off, that he'd apparently nail them to a wall above the exit sign. Is that... I mean, in the principal photography section that I was in, that never happened. I don't know, maybe that happened at the mocap hangar. I can't speak to what happened there, but um, you know, they shot that for a long time, and I was never part of the film at that point, so I can't speak to what happened there. I never saw anything like that on on the set. You know, he... He may have that reputation and maybe well-deserved or well-earned. I never saw an inch of that when I was shooting this movie. He was just a very hardworking, demanding, you know, like, you know, there's no question who's in charge and what he wants. But never did I see it like, you know, to do anything weird at yeah. all. Yeah. As much as that rumor about Cameron persists, I think I trust, obviously, the internet less. Here is <laughs> – in the trivia for Drag Me to Hell, we'll move on to Drag Me to Hell. Sure. Someone uh, felt the need to write this comment. Hitler exterminated thousands of gypsies and no Lamias or other demons dragged him down to hell. Like as if proof that. <laughs> I, I, I guess some people have a very difficult understanding of what 
fiction is <laughs> or like the <laughs> parable nature of invented storytelling. I, yeah, like, I they mean, can't do a willing suspension of disbelief on this for, film for anything. Hitler wasn't dragged. I mean, at that point, it's like Hitler, Hitler becomes the argument against every. I mean, this is a, <laughs> this is a serious thing to say. I guess in some ways, is like. Hitler becomes the argument against religion. Hitler becomes the argument against every form of power that ever interceded on anyone's behalf ever, right? <laughs> Except for the mechanics of steel, bullets, war, and will when the Allies went in and you know the Soviets and the United States and the Brits and the French defeated him and his art and the Wehrmacht. I don't think – anytime you're making a comment that begins with Hitler and you're talking about a movie, For I don't know. such a trivial – Point too. It's. Well, I don't know what that point's supposed to make. Like, are they supposed to say like, guys, the Lamia isn't real? Like, okay, well, thank you for that information. Yeah. Like, I think we all know that like the Lamia is not real. I've spent hours parsing this comment, and I, <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I don't know what the intent of that is. Let's get in touch with him. He'll be my next guest. <laughs> I was not there too. <laughs> I want to talk to the, the vast yeah. numbers of people that were not on the sets of movies that we want to hear about. But have plenty to say about. Oh, it. Well, that's the internet. Uh, okay, so working with Sam Raimi, he yeah. seems like he'd be kind of fun. Oh, he's the best. Really? He's like, you know, it's like being on set with family and he's he leads with a kind of uh, passion and 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 prepare his preparation is so thorough, but his collaborative nature is so the lead with him. Um such a smart, imaginative, fun guy to be with. I I just I love making that movie with him. It was my second film. I just come back from New Zealand and, you know, when you shoot a movie like Avatar, you get a lot of experience shooting because you shoot a lot of takes and it takes a long time to, to make that movie. This was a much faster picture because I think Sam had decided to make a kind of a throwback horror movie of his own taste after having made a lot of studio movies and a lot of big special effects pictures mm-hmm. like, you know, Spider-Man. This was a much faster experience and I just remember like wanting to do a really good job for him and the same, same as anyone else. But... I just had a lot of fun just hanging out with him and, and working with him, and he's a wonderful man. God, the, even the set itself seems like it's a bit of a playground, that seance set. And I, I, that whole thing must have been constructed just for tons of special effects. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And you know, he talks you through the, what, the, the teacup rattles over here, and the voice comes from over there. And like it's, it's just it's, – it's really kind of – even though he is so skilled and has such incredible talent, there's a – kind of joyous old schoolness to the way he works. Definitely, yeah. That uh, it, it just feels a little more like we're, we got the guys together to make a movie, <laughs> except with one of the most brilliant filmmakers alive, right? Like, and Peter Deming shot that movie, who is a genius. And, you know, Grant Curtis produced that movie. I love Grant. Grant's a great guy. Um, Ellen Freund was props on that. I, I, I had a great time working with everybody. Alison Lohman and I had a blast. Justin Long and I, <laughs> a lot of goofiness on that stuff sometimes, too. How is it working with the goat? They say you should never work with children or animals. And there you well, are. I mean that's generally goat. true if you want to have any kind of presence in what you're doing because everyone's <laughs> eyes immediately go to them. Except for certain actors. And I know you're a performer as well. Um, certain actors, they do come at acting from a different place and they have that thing. And it's like sometimes people talk about presence or they, they have this kind of inscrutable animal fluidity or childlike kind of presence where you'd kind of disappear next to them, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, that's always an incredibly interesting thing because I think acting is done so many different ways, you know? And I, I just remember that goat, there were two goats. One had been castrated and one had not. And uh, Specific, just as a goat or not specifically for this film? For I think for the film because the goat that was, I, I can't remember exactly why it was like this, but they were definitely there. The goat that was castrated was like, 
you know, the most docile, gentle, of course. like like a like a like an old dog almost. You know, like we're like they don't take a lot of energy, they don't take a lot of time. They kind of nuzzle you. They want a little stroke. They want to eat their hay or whatever. And yeah, they just, just want to watch their stories and go to sleep. Totally, one hundred percent. Yeah, they're, 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 yeah just put the soaps on, right? <laughs> and the uncastrated goat. Man, that goat. I just love that we're having this conversation. Oh, that, that, that was hilarious. Like that goat rammed that table so hard so many times. You're like, thank God my fingers like weren't like where it went. And I mean, it was never unsafe, but that, that was a very difficult like um, animal to control for when we had to shoot certain things. Because I think that animal had more like vivacity for like the, you know, sure, like, yeah. and so I think that's why they had it. And so the wildness of it was interesting. This is the, why I love doing this podcast because never in a million years would I have known that about that goat. But that <laughs> it was fun, man. It, you just learn like why they do certain things certain ways, you know. When you um, first touch Allison Lohman's character in the beginning and you get the vision of the demon, because Sam Raimi knows distinctly what he wants to do, and as an audience we see it visually, but. At the time of the shooting, did he describe exactly what was happening, what you'd see, or is it just up to you to say you see something He horrible? times it with you and he walks you through it. So you you reach this kind of cool um, collaborative uh, space where you're very in the moment and you're really experiencing what you're experiencing because that's kind of the threshold, right, of whether you're acting or not well. And uh, <laughs> he'll feed you the impulse or tell you what you see. And you have that go through you like a spark, you know? And, of course, the camera loves that. Yeah. So a, a lot of what was, I would say, credible on my part in, the, in those moments has everything to do with Sam's brilliance. Interesting. All right. Did you, you said you got your start in theater generally. Yeah, right? yeah. And were you doing that as far back as high school and that sort of thing? I did one play between eighth and ninth grade and then when I had a tiny part in South Pacific. And um, I remember getting my first laugh and loving it. And being also like, I don't really know how that worked, except I was myself and just did it. <laughs> Isn't um, that always a, it happened to me once too? And I went, well, is this some a power that I control and possess, or is it just something that's going to happen? Like, and somewhere between those two things is the correct answer. Yeah, and probably the best answer, the what you want. Yeah, that yeah. it's actually some weird cocktail between your preparation and execution yeah. and your ability to be with them. Yeah, you know, um, and to listen really, really intently. So I, I, I learned a lot about uh, the addiction of being a performer and also how, you know, theater of its old, like that, like old school theater is so well written and so beautifully dramatized in a kind of particular way that you learn its rhythms and feel. So I, I, that gag, I remember the gag, the way I did it just worked because it was in the writing. And then I did a small play at the end of high school. Then I went to um, college to be a doctor. And I that taste of that from high school gave me an interest, but I didn't really know what to do with it. Except play a doctor in Avatar. Yeah, I didn't know that yet. The highest grossing film of all time. Yes, I didn't yeah. know that was going to happen. I guess my mother gets some joy in that, that I eventually was some kind of doctor. <laughs> <laughs> like any Indian mom, she's like, at least you look like one. Um, so, no, I, I, I definitely decided in college that it's what I wanted to do. And I I always say I felt like I didn't belong to anything until I walked into the theater. And then I felt like I belonged. The reason I ask this is because if I have my information correct, you graduated from Claremont High School in 1991. Mm -hmm. I graduated Lucerna High School in 1991, and we would go to theater festivals with Claremont High, and I was just wondering if we had ever crossed paths. Or no way. My parents would never let me be a thespian back really? then. Really? It was they that tight? My father would have beat me up. Oh, my God. Um, no, there's no way. I, I would have wanted to, I'm sure, but I, you know, I played football ill-advisedly, and I try to be a lot of things I probably wasn't. Uh, I should have just accepted that was a theater dork. 
Um, no, I, I was later, much later that I came to it. And I really, somewhere in college, I had some extraordinary teachers there, uh, Luther James, especially Walt Jones, uh, Steve Adler, people who taught me the value of truth, you know. And then I went to drama school, and that's where I learned to do what I sort of do now. Um, I want to take a second to thank Jonathan Dynastine, who's a friend and a musical genius for the Thrilling Adventure Hour, among many other things. He's the reason the leap is here today. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. It's my pleasure. Tell me briefly how you guys know each other, because this is a great story as well. Uh, Dalip and I are regulars at a weekly trivia pub quiz in Santa Monica. Santa Monica. Santa Monica. Santa, Santa Monica. It's very close to Santa Monica. It's a small little municipality outside of Santa Monica. Now, you are you both have a bit of a game show history. You were a Jeopardy champion. Am I wrong that about that? That is correct. No, that's right. How many episodes did you go? Because you, what, won I won one. 000? I won one, and I lost another. <laughs> oh, man, that's pretty good. Uh, personally, I was on Rock and Roll Jeopardy. I wish I could have been on the real Jeopardy. Hey, man, that's pretty good. Well, Dalip, tell us what you're up to now and where people can find you. Uh, I'm just wrapped a movie with Jay Lowy and Tim Simons, you know, the guy from Veep. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So we just did a little movie over the summer, which is called Delinquents, and I had a really great time shooting that. It was really fun. Um, so I shot that. Um, you know, the usual actor life, you audition for this, audition for that, maybe get a gig here and there. Uh, I'm, I've written a movie. I'm trying to get me made right now, which is kind of fun. What, what's that all about? It's called The Unbearable Truth. It's about an Indian-American architect who's an exquisitely brilliant liar, and he fires a woman to save his friend's job who's a brilliant architect herself. And while he fires her, he falls in love with her. Oh. And his parents want him to marry an Indian girl, and he wants to find out what real love is like, and hijinks ensue. Great. Yeah, it's a cool little movie. Uh, so that's sort of what I'm working on now and, you know, the usual actor-writer life. Do what you can. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking us through these three films. You've already had an amazing career. I look forward to seeing what else you're going to do. It was great talking to you, man. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. And thanks, Jonathan. My pleasure. And thanks, Sam. You got it. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> thank you, Dalip. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for listening. As always, you can find me at Matt Gorley on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where I often post lists about the upcoming films for this podcast and the little theme song tags at the beginning of these episodes' theme songs. Plus, you can find uh, more information at I Was There Too on Twitter. And if you can connect me to a guest, please email me at IWasThereToPod at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.